0: This morning we come to the end of the cycle, final phase of equanimity. And we'll recall that the presenting equanimity, the cultivation of equanimity as an aspiration. It's the aspiration that we may be all free of attachment and aversion. Well, since we're at the culmination, and this is the last time I'll go through the cycle in terms of guided meditations, while we, med- we med- meditate, to the extent that I think it might be helpful, I'll, I'll front load the meditations starting tomorrow, but not talk through them, so you can just not be multitasking as you meditate. Um, but as we come to this culmination, then, let's do something novel I've never done before, uh, and that is ask, well, what are we fundamentally attached to or really drawn to, let alone attachment, but really attracted to? And within the context of Buddhist practice, then one could say, well, liberation, enlightenment, nirvana, nirvana, ultimate peace, immutable bliss. And what are we averse to? What are we fed up with? Sounds like a cheerleading squad. Uh, samsara, samsara, right? Give me, a, give me an S. But from the Dzogchen view, the entirety of samsara and nirvana is seen as one of equal purity. So, as I've mentioned before, no preference. In other words, suggesting there's a perspective, there is a perspective that one could adopt, from which samsara and nirvana are completely equal, and all aspects of samsara within samsara and, and in relationship to nirvana, completely equal, without preference. a perspective, according to the perspective of Rikpa. So this is, this is just an intimation of the profundity of resting in the open presence of Rikpa, and, and it shows the wild absurdity of conflating that with mere just open presence, like uh. marmot meditation. It's just like you just want to start laughing uncontrollably of conflating these two. Because one is actually viewing reality from rikpah, the other one's just sitting there like a dope. Or like a marmot. I don't mean to you know, be disparaging marmots. I'm sure they have their point of view. But to view reality from rikbah is to view reality from the fourth time, from a time that's beyond this narrow sliver that we call the present, transcending the present, transcending the future and the past, transcending the three times, viewing reality from the fourth time such that one sees the singularity or the non-differentiation of the ground, the path, and the fruition. The ground is wherever we're starting out from. The path is that path of evolution along the path to enlightenment, the fruition, of course, the enlightenment itself, the fruition, but a perspective from which these three are simultaneous or they are seen simultaneously. They are of the same nature, there is no place to go. There is nothing to abandon, nothing to achieve. Not in some new-agey, cheesy fashion, which happens an awful lot. As in this kind of moral relativism, well, after all, nothing's really, nothing's really good, nothing's really evil. This is why Dzogchen is often kept secret. Just because it can be so easily, you can just nudge it a little bit. And I'm going to use my little b-word again. Just nudge a little bit and it goes from Dzogchen to bullshit. You know, And it's so easy. The same kind of words. You know, And yet, here it is just a awe-inspiring profundity to slap your forehead, give me a break, bullshit. You know? And it's so easily, it look, the words can be so easily just tilted a little bit and then you say, oh, I wish I'd never mentioned it. You know? And that's why it's kept secret. Can we even imagine such a perspective? Well, one achieves there, one reaches there by way of non-grasping. Non-grasping. Now, the issue of restlessness, of the rumination, of tension, of tightness, has cropped up a lot, I think, in your practice. It certainly has cropped up a lot in our conversations, and it's not confined to people in this room. And it's all very well to be applying techniques, okay, walk mindfully, spaciously, go into the supine position, infirmary, do some yoga, and so forth. It's all very good to apply technical responses to restlessness, agitation, anxiety, and so forth. Try this, try this, try that. It's all good. But are we really getting down to the taproot of the restlessness, the agitation, the anxiety just by applying these little remedies on the surface? Maybe not. And that is insofar as we are committed to the pursuit of hedonic well-being really think, well, that's where my happiness lies. Insofar as there's attachment there, anxiety is just bound to come. Anxiety and restlessness and agitation and excitation and all the rest, worry, it's just bound to come. And it's for a very obvious reason. We're gambling. It's like playing the roulette, and you've just put all your life savings on black. Now, how exactly are you going to be relaxed? As the wheel is now spinning. Ah, yeah. The oneness of black and red and zero and double zero. It's all. Then there's no reason to be in a casino. If you, if you already have achieved that, there's no reason to be gambling at all, right? No, people go, go black, go black, go black. Oh, 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 oh. It's all hope and fear, right? And that's just the quintessence of the, of the pursuit of hedonic pleasure because, again, so much in the world is completely. Well, it's as much as in, in our control as the spinning of the roulette wheel done by the professional, by the house. How much control do you have? Well, I think it's called zero. But then your whole fate depends on, does it fall into black, red, or one of those two little nasty ones, you know, which, which of course guarantees that the house always wins if you play long enough. It's those two little zero, double zero, then you know the house will always win. It's just a matter of time. Samsara always wins. And so there it is. And within the context of this life, then we can just say it's dumb luck. Some people, you know, so intelligent and hardworking fail catastrophically. Right? The best I've seen it. People with the best degrees, lots of intelligence, lots of drive, and just one catastrophe, one disaster, one failure after another. You see, gosh, boy, that's a string of bad luck. And other people just kind of fall out of bed into, you know, a puddle of chocolate. I mean, that's my idea of really falling out of bed into something nice. You can come up with your own analogy. <laughs> but, you know, not very bright, and not very educated, and not very hardworking, and suddenly there they are on the front of, front of Time magazine. Or at least People magazine. You know. I think it's easier to get into front of... It's easier probably to be a dope in front of People magazine than Time, but I'm not really sure. But some people they just luck out. I say, geez, you didn't deserve that. I'm, maybe, oh, give me a break. What? How come? You're famous. You're prestigious. You're powerful. You're rich. And what did you bring to it? One could say, geez, and we call it luck. Right? Go figure. So, very one, very, very smart, very hardworking, and very wealthy friend of mine quoted to me a statement. I think it's kind of common in his profession, and he said. If a choice of being either smart or lucky, choose lucky. <laughs> if you're going to be either smart or lucky, if you have a choice to be either either smart or lucky, choose lucky, because that's going to bring you much more you know, benefits than just being smart. How many clinically depressed people are there who is really smart? Just think a lot. Right. Lots and lots. Right. And how many really smart people who complete failures? and have low self-esteem, and so forth. Just think lots and lots and lots, and and lots. So there it is. I mean, the pursuit of hedonic pleasure within the context of this lifetime just seems to be dumb luck. Whereas if you step back and take this much broader perspective of Buddhism, which is not locked into just one lifetime, you say, no, it's not luck. That's exactly where karma comes in. People are just born into, born with a silver spoon, born into the right circumstances, and they just meet one person after another, and all the things come together for them. In other words, working so hard, and just failure and frustration, and then they die at 36 of cancer, or get a stroke when they're 40, or etc. Tragedy strikes. When, or they wind up being born in the wrong place, that happens to be ripped apart by war, or genocide, or corruption, or repression, and so forth. And the Buddhist view here is, no, it's not luck. The word luck doesn't mean anything. I mean, what do you say? It happens. That's what luck is. It happens. Well, that didn't clarify anything at all. That just said it's another way of saying it happens. But no, karma is not just it happens. That is, as we sow, so shall we, so do we reap. And that is from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime, cultivating certain types of seeds, and there they are maturating. This person is beautiful, this one's ugly, this one's rich, wealthy, and born into it, not just by hard work. So once again, that which you achieve just by birth, which is coming from karma, and that's what you achieve within this lifetime. By your diligent work, whether it's meditative practice or whether it's starting a business and so forth, that's that jang top you acquire by training, by work, by hard effort. So that's it. But either way, either way, the fruits of your karma, that is how your karma comes to maturation in this lifetime, we have no control over that. Really, I mean, there it is. I mean, there are some icebergs there, you know, icebergs in the ocean of a possibility. And certain type of karma will manifest. And you can be enlightened or not. You can be enlightened and die of a stroke or cancer or what have you. You can be a, a serial killer and die at the age of 95 while having sex. <laughs> you know, and it's just, there it is. You know, you can't control that. I didn't say having sex with what. I just said you know, having <laughs> sex. And so, no control, no control is what it really boils down to. And that is when karma. There's certain said to be there are certain types of karma from the past that, although there are many, many, a lot of fluidity in this lifetime, a lot of things we can influence in terms of you know, how we engage with reality, but in terms of what will rise up to meet us over the course of a life. The Buddhist view of karma is, some things you're just going to encounter. And then how you deal with them, and that's not set by karma. That's moment to moment to moment to moment. How do you respond? Uh, That's not pre-programmed. That's not an iceberg. That's fluid. But what rises to meet you, hedonically? Well, you can call it dumb luck, which means nothing at all. Within the context of this life, you can say, there it is, a maturation of karma, which I've seen, again, having lived with Tibetans, they're taking the latter view, this is a maturation of karma. And boy, was that a better hypothesis than dumb luck when they hit, got, got hit with genocide. To say dumb luck, that just, that, that just doesn't do anything for anybody. Ah, gee, tough luck of us that we got our whole civilization wiped out by these barbarians. Tough luck? Well, no, that's, that's just kind of like, that's not going to make it. That's not going to help anybody. It's a non-answer now. And it's a non-answer answer. Whereas when they looked at it with the guidance of His whole, the Dalai Lama and many other great Lamas, Understanding karma, not just saying, instead of, instead of luck, saying karma, which is just one more word for another word. Say, no, this is not just one more word. This is, these are laws of nature. This is how things play out. And this is how you can work with them constructively and creatively. And that turned out to have enormous pragmatic value. That I've seen. You don't, that doesn't mean you have to believe in karma, but I have seen people who really in, in believe in karma. The tremendous value in that, of letting go of resentment and so forth. But now here's where I want to go to an astonishing hypothesis that if you merely believe it, then it has very little value. Whereas if it gets into your, your blood system, into your marrow, into your mental DNA, so that it actually is shifting the way you're viewing reality, it can be absolutely transformative and actually help you achieve shamatha, or develop along the path of shamatha. And that is insofar as, by contrast, insofar as we're really focused from day to day, decade to decade, lifetime to lifetime, on hedonic pleasure, then we're just bound to be anxious because we're hoping and fearing some stuff to happen in a world that is almost entirely beyond our control. So how exactly are you not going to be anxious? Right? It's a, it's a given. You will be anxious, and then when you go to your meditation and you practice shamatha, just expect a rush of rumination, and it can go on indefinitely, because you're always hoping, fearing, hoping, fearing for hedonic things to turn out well, to avoid the bad, but you have no control anymore when, than you, when you're in shamatha than when you're out and, up, out, out and about in the world. So now we're getting down to really root issues. and That is, if you're practicing shamatha, while deeply invested in hedonic pleasure, get used to rumination. It's going to be around for a long time, because it's coming out of anxiety. And the anxiety, unfortunately, is reality-based. This is realistic to be anxious. If you're not, you're ignorant. You're deluding yourself. Fabricated optimism. And baloney like that. But now, let's just shift it over. To the extent that, not a, fundamentally, to the extent that your whole priority system shifts. This is where worldview, values, and way of life are absolutely enmeshed. And the notion of just taking meditation by itself and dunking this into somebody's life, okay, there's a nice band-aid, but don't expect anything more. If the worldview, the values, the way of life more or less stay the same, and you give them Dzogchen or Vajrayana or Zen or Vipassana or Shamatha, it's a band-aid. It's a band-aid. Now, it might actually work to start influencing the view, in which, in the case, that's as good, but if the view, values, and way of life stay the same, meditation is valium. It's just a nice little drug to make some a bit more bearable. Right? So, nothing wrong with that, but, you know. But meditation, when it's actually linked with view, and a view, and a radical shift of priorities and of values, insofar as, then, One's priorities shift away with regards to the hedonic being content with merely that which is adequate, that which is merely adequate, but then focusing on the cultivation, the discovery, the unveiling of genuine happiness as a core priority. You can call that the pursuit of liberation, if you like, if you want to put it in a soteriological framework of liberation. Or if you want to have it just expand three-dimensionally to it's like a supernova that fills the whole cosmos, then how about bodhicitta? Relative bodhicitta, the aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings, to liberate each one from suffering, to bring each one to an enduring state of well-being. Now it's just gone massive. That's why it's called Mahayana, the great, vast vehicle. All right. So imagine that that becomes a central priority. Bodhicitta, the one we tapped into yesterday, relative bodhicitta, and this is now the desire of all desires, such that all other desires are derivative, are secondary, fit into a framework. But this is the pinnacle. This is what, this is the, the the pole that holds up the whole tent. It's bodhicitta holds up the whole framework, and everything else is relative to that. Going to the bathroom, eating, getting married, having children, getting a job, moving here there, all that has its place, ah, within the framework of bodhicitta. Consider that. I think the most benevolent of all possible aspirations. So imagine like iron filings that line up towards a magnet that your whole, your whole way of life, all of your desires, your priorities, all of your actions become all oriented around bodhicitta. The aspiration for genuine happiness but writ large expanded to embrace all beings. I would say, the Buddhist tradition says, This is an absolutely reality-based motivation. This is just rooted right in the core, into into the the guts of reality, to have that kind of motivation. But that's just tapping right down into the taproot of ultimate reality itself. And in other words, an absolutely authentic, I mean actually absolutely, an absolutely authentic motivation. So, here's the question, here's the radical hypothesis. We know that in the pursuit of hedonic pleasure, it's hit and miss. You can try so hard, but don't expect to be lucky. You may be, but you may not be. It's just reality doesn't rise up to meet us. This universe is not user-friendly for the pursuit of hedonic pleasure. Hurricanes, earthquakes, tsunamis, typhoons, tornadoes, aging sickness, death, it's kind of like reality is out to get us and beat us to pulp until we're beaten to death. And that's let alone all the human created misery from craving and hostility and delusion. So, this is not a user friendly place for the pursuit of hedonic pleasure. Some people luck out. We've lucked out. Look where we are right now 40 people in this room. I think for the time being, we're sitting pretty. By the way, the karma's going to run out in about two and a half weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but for right now, Breathe deeply. Enjoy it. Don't be anxious. I'm sure it's going to be okay. <laughs> on Friday, I'm sure it's going to be... <laughs> well, that's up to us. What will happen on our last Friday here? Well, What will happen hedonically beyond our control? Will your airplane crash? Will you have a squalling child in the seat right next to you? Do you have a preference between those two? <laughs> So hedonically, there it is. It's not a friendly universe. Quite to the contrary. Buddhist view, ocean of misery. How about that one? It's an analogy. An ocean of suffering. Doesn't sound very user-friendly to me. But now assume, just imagine, that you have a very mature, well-informed, deep, wise, profound understanding of what genuine happiness is. And not only there is a vision, there is a north star to navigate by, but you have a rich understanding of dharma. What does it mean to cultivate hyphen unveil or discover genuine happiness? What does that mean? What's the how does it how does it manifest? In other words, what is dharma practice? Is it just shamatha? If it's just shamatha, then expect that the world is going to be beating you up a lot. Noisy neighbors and all kinds of stuff, noise from the environment and hassles and blah, 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 blah. So if you're equating dharma practice with shamatha, that's going to be a tough one because shamatha really requires a very quiet, conducive environment. Right? So it better be broader than that. To add four measurables, that's a step in the right direction. But now how about just expanding, deepening, enriching your understanding what is spiritual practice? And I'm defining spiritual practice as methods, way of life, viewing reality priorities that are oriented towards the discovery, the cultivation of genuine happiness. No reference to karma, God, Buddha, nirvana, anything. You don't need that. It may be useful. It is useful for some people. But that's how I understand spiritual practice, a way of viewing reality, a set of priorities, a way of life practice, oriented towards the discovery and the development of genuine happiness. So now, if that becomes central, I'm finally going to say the extraordinary hypothesis you've probably heard before. Might it be the case that reality is really user-friendly? To that. And it's an insofar as. Not, oh, we're the chosen, we're the elite. Religious people have done this for a a lot, a lot of times. Many, many times. We're the chosen ones. We're the Christian. We're the saved. We're the the insiders. We're the Buddhists. We're the Buddhists. We're the ones. God, God, the Buddha, and so forth, smiles upon us. Not the outsiders. Not the heathen. Not the Gentiles. Not the heretics and so forth and so on. All religious people have been doing that a lot, okay, for centuries. That's not what I'm talking about. Not what I'm talking about at all. Genuine happiness. Call it liberation, awakening, genuine happiness. You can use your own words. But insofar as you really have an authentic, rich, diverse, balanced understanding of what that means And the way to orient one's whole way of viewing reality, one's priorities, ways of life, and practice, all towards the realization of that. In other words, fundamentally rooted in reality. Does reality to that extent rise up to meet you? And you meet just one good fortune after another after another. And that can include dying of cancer, that can include all kinds of hedonic misery. And it's not just making lemonade out of lemons. It's not just putting a happy face, talking about silver lining on a cloud. I'm not talking about some sappy, psychobabble, kind of put a smiley face on everything. I don't have any time for that. Life is too short. I'm asking a really deep question here. Could reality, the universe, could it be friendly? Is it in the very nature of the universe to rise up to meet us, to help us moment by moment by moment, day by day, question by question, prayer by prayer, practice by practice, rise up to meet us in ways absolutely beyond our control and absolutely aligned with our core aspiration. A user-friendly universe insofar as the priorities are there, focus on genuine happiness, and it's not just some abstract ideal, but with a richness of understanding how do we transmute, how do we digest, how do we assimilate, how do we become nourished, By whatever rises to meet us, rude people and friendly people and sickness and aging and good health and wealth and bounty and poverty and so forth, whatever comes, and see that this is not just being psychologically clever, and there's nothing wrong with that. Make the best of it, okay? That's not an ontological statement, that's just kind of common sense. Whatever's happening, well, make the best of it. What else are you gonna do? Make the worst of it? So, yeah, okay, of course, of course. Now, let's put that one aside. I'm not asking that question. Whether Whether we should always try to make the best of it. You had a really crummy meditation session. Well, make the best of it. Relax. Okay, that's all very well. But it could be in the nature of reality that absolutely contrary to the notion that is one just great big mindless machine that for whatever reason, no reason at all, just blew up a long time ago out of nothing. Big Bang, 13.7 billion years ago, and the can't kind of cranking mindlessly, amorally along on its, like some mindless zombie, getting tired, and then dying in a big whimper, which is one possibility, or being kind of a, a, a zombie universe on a yo yo. That's another view, the oscillating universe, from the Big Bang back to the Big Crunch, the Big Bang, the Big Crunch, mindless zombie universe, where everybody gets to suffer in all circumstances. You're going out, you get to suffer, you're going in, you get to suffer, everybody gets extinguished, and then the mindless zombie maniac universe creates a bunch of more sentient beings just suffer as I breathe in and I breathe out, you know, little suckers, (laughs) there's one view. If you like that as a working hypothesis, you may go now. (laughs) Or consider it a deeper level. I mean, it's absolutely astonishing. And as a mere belief, then it's like an inert gas. It just sits there. But what about viewing reality? Ontologically, as a view of reality and not just make the best of things. That in fact... The universe is rising up to meet you every moment, inviting you to pursue genuine happiness, inviting you to cultivate the true causes of happiness, rising up to assist you from moment to moment to moment. And it's not karma. Karma is hedonic. It beats you up, it strokes you, but it's hedonic. It's not the blessings of a Buddha. It's not the curses of the devil. You sowed, you reap. That's it. Nothing special. And we've created our own universe. In the Buddhist view, we've created our universe. That is, we sow the karma, we're getting the results. So don't look to anybody else. Nobody's punishing us. Nobody's rewarding us. But this, what I'm talking about here, is not karma. It's something way beyond karma. It's from the fourth time. It's from the deepest dimension of our own awareness, inviting us to know reality as it is. And providing us with the circumstances from day to day, year to year, lifetime to lifetime. To be nurtured and to follow that path. But if we ignore that, say, ah, uh, that's spiritual stuff, that's religion, that's, that's, that's belief in Buddha and God and all of that stuff. That's for religious people. I'm very busy. Then okay. play the, Play the casino as long as you like. You can. It will go on indefinitely. And as they say, the house always wins. Because however successful you are, it always ends in aging, sickness, and death. The house wins. It just always wins. It eternally wins. So you can look at that. You can have a short, short-term view, a materialistic view. That is, it's this life. Good. You die. That is, aging, sickness, death. Game over. You lose. Ah! That's the short-term view. Or the big-term view is, aging, sickness, and death forever. That's big loser. That's like loser, like loser, 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 and in between losing, I had a happy day. Oh, it's over, and then it's back to aging, sickness, and death. So there's one, there's one hedonic path. It's called a cycle. It goes around and around, snake chasing its tail. Or the possibility of a path. But consider this as we go into this practice. Might it be that when your core aspiration, this fundamental impulse, is now rooted in reality, expresses itself in this utter commitment, resolve, devotion to, complete freedom from suffering, and the realization of genuine happiness, liberation, awakening for all beings, that that's as authentic as it gets, and because the motivation is rooted in reality, reality rises up to meet you from moment to moment. That can be expressed theistically, and theistic people have been expressing that for centuries. Right? It comes up in Buddhism. Not so theistic, not so clearly theistic, certainly not in the sense of Buddha being the creator of the universe, as somebody outside that did it to us. There it is. So, insofar as one is just rooted in that motivation, moved by that motivation of genuine happiness, and has the trust, really core trust. The stakes here are enormously high. has that core trust. My motivation is rooted in reality, therefore reality will, wi- will rise up to meet me and I'm counting on it. And I'm not talking about hedonic pleasure and hedonic suffering. I'm talking about something infinitely deeper. But there I can count on it. I'm totally at home. I can be absolutely at ease. Absolutely free of anxiety, devoid of hope and fear, resting secure. My motivation is sound, my motivation is rooted in reality, and reality every moment will rise up to meet me. And in that, I place my ultimate trust, and therefore I can relax. And now, finally, what that Wallace guy's been talking about for six weeks maybe I could actually do it, I could relax because I'm no longer binding myself up in a mindset that never lets me relax. So let's practice. Step by step, settle your body, your speech and respiration, and your mind in the natural state, in equilibrium. arouse the question, why couldn't we all be free of attachment and aversion to those who are near and far and experience such equanimity that results from that freedom? and arouse the aspiration. May we all be free. May we all abide in the equanimity, the equilibrium that is devoid, that is transcended. Attachment and aversion. ultimately to come to rest in the fourth time the perfect equanimity the great perfection of equanimity with each outbreath breathe out the light of this aspiration. And then, if you will, arouse the resolve. I shall bring us all to such perfect equanimity, free of all hope and fear, all desire and aversion, even, for, even with respect to samsara and nirvana, transcending all conceptual frameworks, And in order to do so, of course, I must realize such perfect awakening myself. For how else shall I lead others to that which I've not experienced myself? With every outbreath, arouse this aspiration and this resolve, and breathe out the light of bodhicitta. In order to realize that resolve, may reality rise up to meet me, moment by moment, day by day, or to rephrase, may I receive the blessings of all the enlightened ones, imagine this light converging in from all sides. so that your very body-mind, your whole embodiment here, blazes incandescently with this light of loving-kindness and compassion imbued with wisdom. Breathe in the light and with every outbreath, breathe out the light of this bodhicitta, this mind of enlightenment. And imagine the entire world and all the beings within it awakening to our true nature, coming to know reality as it is. Then release all development of the mind, all appearances and aspirations and resolves and utterly rest. Let your awareness hold its own ground effortlessly, illuminating and knowing itself. Enjoy your day.